0: To you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to keep fast then to the twelve then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to james then to all the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain. on the contrary i worked harder than any of them though it was not i but the grace of god that is with me whether then it was i or they so we preach and so we believe now if christ is perceived has raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you
1: very much for reading. I can ask you all to keep first Corinthians, and um, whatever. A really exciting and really, really important chapter of the Bible. I'm going to pray again, and i love going to pray again. Heavenly Father, as we come to study and think on these great words, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, the Amen. I'll begin by asking you all. How much time do you spend thinking about your body? I guess uh, some of the medics among us have spent a lot of time thinking about the body recently. I know exam time uh, has just passed for some of them anyway. And you've been studying the amazing way that every part works together for the benefit of the whole. And thinking about the time when one part goes wrong and how the rest of the body can suffer as a result which is a very sort of 1st Corinthian way of thinking of the body if you could do this through this whole series. If you're not a medic, I guess that your thinking about the body and the thinking about your body is limited to mostly how it looks, what it wears. You can probably tell that I only spend an awful lot of time thinking about what my body looks like. I got an Apple Watch for my birthday a few weeks ago, and all it does is remind me how little exercise. I actually do. The body uh, is something that we all have and something that we spend very much of time actually thinking about. I don't mean, know if you've noticed, but the body, and your body, is an important aspect of many of the debates in the world of today. Whether you're on the pro-choice end of the spectrum, or whether you're an anti-vaccine mandator, You might resonate with the phrase, my body, my choice. Our bodies are integral to our identity, to our sense of self-worth, of who we are. But we're also increasingly being told that our bodies don't define us. That they are not who we are. That our bodies are not our boss. This idea re-emerged among humanity 400 years ago. There's a guy called Rene Descartes, if you've uh, you've studied philosophy, you'll come across him. And he famously said, and you heard this expression, I think, therefore, I am. In other words, what really matters, what really defines you, is your brain. It's your thinking. And your body is really just a vehicle that sort of drives your brain around. That's sort of how many of us think about our bodies, isn't it? And we find this type of thinking absolutely everywhere, again, on both ends of the spectrum. On one end we're told that gender isn't what's between your legs, it's what's between your ears. How you feel whether it's masculine, feminine, or other, that is what you are. You can be a man trapped in a woman's body. I think,
0: therefore,
1: I am. The thing is, people on the other end of the spectrum can find themselves thinking this way too. Christians can find themselves thinking this way too. When I was a student, which is 10 years ago now, People were sort of discovering the share button on Facebook. Up until that point, Facebook was really just you updated for what you had for your lunch and you put up photos of you know your family and all of those things. But people started realising, you oh, know, I can share with other people at first And the thing that really took off, this is really before names even existed it a lot of time before names actually believe it when I want to say that. And what people love to do is share inspirational quotes. And one of the quotes that did rounds, Maybe you've heard this before, and it was attributed to C.S. Lewis, and as of most internet quotes C.S. Lewis didn't actually say, the quote goes, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Maybe you've heard that before, maybe you've never heard that exact phrase before, but I guess even hearing it now, it sort of resonates with you, it is a nice ring to it a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. The line behind that quote, whoever said it, is again it e. Rene Descartes. I think They thought that, basically, flesh and physical matter was bad, and spirit and mind was good. And that the whole world was a battle between the non-physical, spiritual world, and the physical, material, bad world. A cosmic duel going on between matter and spirit. It's not about your body. Your body's a bad thing your soul, your spirit. And what we find is that this way of thinking had crept into the Corinthian church. And it's a profoundly unbiblical way of thinking. Because you see, at the heart of the Christian message is a radical, and it's radical in its day, and it's radical in ours, a radical pro-body idea. God himself took on flesh in the Lord Jesus. He was a real, physical human being. He took on flesh, he died, he rose again in a physical body. And the message of the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is that one day, on the last day, what the Bible calls the last day, is that Christians, like Jesus, will be raised from the dead to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth forever. So the end point for the Christian is not a sort of non-physical, spiritual realm. It's a real, physical, new earth. The Bible says that matter matters. But to a first century Greek, you thought that matter was bad and spirit was good. This idea was mad that there would be a resurrection at the end, then that would be a good thing. And they thought it was mad, not because of the biology, not because of the physics that that would require, but again, because matter, by its very definition, your physical body was something that you wanted to escape from. Your body was a prison that your soul was released from in death to enjoy a non-material, a non-physical afterlife. This idea was so prominent that there was sort of a catchphrase that went around in the first century. We so saw people were have written this down everywhere. There's a phrase that says soma sima. Soma means body and sigma means prison. Soma sima. The body is a prison. And that's what you say to someone when they got sick. The body is a prison. That's what you would say when someone died. Well, the body is a prison. They're free now. And just like the Corinthians, just like their, their thoughts about leaders, food, sex, gender, giftedness, this worldly way of thinking, the body is a prison to be escaped from, had crept into the Corinthian church. And it seems as if some in the Corinthian church have even began teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. Perhaps it was a non-material, afterlife, but maybe not even. Maybe the only reason to become a Christian is for the benefits that it brings to your life now. They were rejecting the resurrection. And this is the final issue that Paul confronts, that Paul corrects to the confused Corinthian church. Now, in two weeks' time, uh, we're going to be looking at what the resurrection will be like Christians, that's the second half of chapter 15. Next week we've got Ben's watchables, but tonight we're going to look at Paul's defense of the reality of the resurrection, and then we're going to look at the Corinthians' rejection of the resurrection. So the reality of the resurrection and the rejection of the resurrection and consequences of that. First of all, the reality of the resurrection. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, well, unless you believe, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance With the scriptures. What is the gospel? What is it all about? What is at the heart of this good news that the Bible speaks of? Well, Paul summarizes it here for us in 40 words. Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those 40 words, they are the core. The gospel. Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, all in accordance with the scriptures. So how do we know? A question like that. That's a question I've got to ask at the life force. Uh, just as we have, how do we know all of this is true? How do we know that Jesus actually rose again? Well, the first thing is that Paul says, we know it's true, because the Old Testament it. The Old Testament, those 39 books, some in hundreds, some thousands of years before Jesus was born, prophesied that the Son of God would die and rise again. In Isaiah 53, we read that the servant will suffer and die for his people. In Psalm 22, we read, all he will die, his hands and feet will be pierced. In Psalm 16, we read that he will rise again, again, and again, and again. The Old Testament foretells, directly or indirectly, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. How do we know Jesus' destruction of Well, look at what everything, look at what was promised beforehand. And if that's not enough evidence for you, Paul provides seven new pieces of evidence. For the Corinthians to consider. Seven pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Have a look at verse 5 to 11 and see if you can see the seven pieces of evidence. The first six pieces of evidence of the reality of the resurrection are appearances. You see that word appear again and again. Verse 5. here. a look at verse 5. Evidence, piece, piece of evidence number one Jesus appeared to Cephas. Who's Cyprus? is Peter, the Apostle. That's the Aramaic form of his name. Like the Aramaic on Peter as well. So my name in Aramaic would be Cyprus. In French it would be Pierre. Yeah. Um, so the first piece of evidence, he appeared to Peter. Second piece of evidence, verse 5, he appeared to the 12 disciples. Third piece of evidence, he appeared to a crowd of 500. Most of them were still alive. So the Corinthians could go and check. Fourth Peter and this, gave <coughs> James. Now, who's James? James was Jesus' brother. And until James saw the risen Jesus, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, James thought that Jesus was insane. Just like you think, your brother was insane. He went around telling people he was God in the flesh. But James met the risen Jesus, and he then became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's Evans number four, the conversion and appearance to Jesus' brother, the unbelieving brother. Evans page number five, verse seven, he appeared to all the apostles together. And evidence number six, he appeared finally to Paul. So here we have six independent pieces of evidence. Of course, there's more evidence than is simply listed here. But if the Corinthians want to deny the reality of the resurrection, they have to disprove each of these six pieces. All of them. You can't just disprove one. You have to disprove all six to show that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. I guess many of us will know that thousands of people have investigated the resurrection of this thoroughly. One investigator was a historian, a professor of history at Oxford University, Thomas Arnold. And here's what he said after he looked into the evidence. And know no one fact in the history of mankind was better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again the dead. The seventh piece of evidence that Paul offers stands from absolute evidence number six. The seventh piece of evidence for the reality of the resurrection is the new pattern of Paul's life. When Paul met the risen Jesus, his life changed forever. Paul tells us that in verse 9. Look. I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am who like I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. You see Paul, the author of this letter that we're studying, Paul hated Christians. Paul devoted his life Having Christians imprisoned and killed, I mean, especially here that they kept telling people that this Jesus guy rose from the dead. But one day, Paul met the risen Lord Jesus, and he went from being the church's greatest persecutor to its greatest preacher. If you want to deny the reality of the resurrection, you need to disprove the problem of Paul. Why on earth did the church's greatest enemy become its greatest advocate? Why did the man who worked tirelessly to kill Christians end up getting harder for trying to make more Christians? Why did he die for telling people that Jesus rose from the dead? That's obvious answer. The one that he gives us, that he met the risen Jesus. He formally rejected the resurrection, but discovered it was a reality and spent the rest of his life trying to convince the world that Jesus rose from the dead. There we have Paul's case for the reality of the resurrection. Was that a mass hallucination? It wasn't a covert conspiracy by like people in positions of power. The resurrection was a reality. So Paul lays out right, all this evidence for the reality of the resurrection. Well, why? Because people in Corinth were rejecting the very idea of resurrection. Quick verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed the raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, it's not entirely clear whether some of the Corinthians were denying the resurrection of Jesus or whether they were denying the resurrection of
0: Christians on the last day. It seems to be primarily the the latter one, but either way, it doesn't matter, because Paul said, if you deny one, you deny the
1: other. If there's no resurrection from the dead, in other words, it's the very concept of a human body being raised to life, if that's impossible, if that can't happen, if that didn't happen, well then Jesus obviously wasn't raised. But you might think that the idea of death and coming back to life is ridiculous. And of course, you know, the stupid people 2,000 years ago, well, they are really damned. You can talk about The exact opposite is the case. The resurrection made no sense to the Greek world. Why could a dead body come back to life? Why would a dead boy want to come back to life? It made no sense. It was foolishness. The resurrection was ridiculous in the first century. Now, if you're here this evening and you're a Christian, your first instinct, and certainly my first instinct, is to look at the Corinthians and think, you guys are idiots. Well, look, I mean, the New Testament clearly teaches The whole Bible clearly says that on the last day there will be a resurrection from the dead. Why, Corinthians? Why try to make the Bible say something it doesn't? Why try and change what the Bible says? Because it doesn't sit well with the world around you. It's very tempting, isn't it? If you're a Christian, it's very tempting. And it's always been tempting to deny the parts of the Bible that the world around us doesn't like. Very tempting. And it can happen really easily. And nine and a half times out of ten, it begins with good intentions. Well, you know, if we just don't mention that part of the Bible, well then more people will come. If we don't, if we just let that particular principle slip, Well then the world will finally listen to us, won't they? That was a temptation in Paul's day. And it remains a temptation in ours. There's a very strong warning here for every Christian. You can imagine the Corinthians thinking, but let's just let's just set aside this resurrection stuff, and then my friend will come to church, and he'll become a Christian and it'll be great. But look at what Paul says happens when you attempt to sweeten the message to the world around us. Verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead aren't raised. You see, by tampering with the message, to make it more palatable, by rejecting the resurrection, Paul says, all preaching is useless. If there's no resurrection, there's no point in preaching. Faith is useless. And ultimately, if there's no resurrection, God cannot be known. See that at the end of verse 15? If God appointed messengers either in the person of Jesus or his delegates, the apostles, if the apostles and their writings can't be trusted to tell the truth about who God is, and what God has done, and what God is like, if you can't trust them, well then how can you know God? What says you can't. Just over ten years ago there was a Thirteen-story apartment building being built in Shanghai. It's a very impressive building, and uh, the developers—they also had not gone through all the proper processes—but they, they threw up this thirteen-story building, and they realised that there's not a lot of parking around here. So, and I don't know if you ever seen Shanghai—it's a pretty congested area. So they said, you know, why don't we put an underfloor car park under the building? And so they started digging away beneath building. Now as they were building, the entire 13-story building collapsed. It fell inside all 13 floors. See, those builders didn't realize that when you remove the foundation of a structure, the whole thing falls. And so denying, that's what Paul's saying here, denying what the Bible teaches removing the foundation of faith will cause faith collapse. The very substance of our faith hangs on Jesus' resurrection. Our salvation, our rescue from the wrath of God hangs on the resurrection. See that in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Now, if you're a Christian, you might find that verse a little bit strange. If Christ hasn't been raised, we're still in our sins. But I thought it was on a cross, but removes our sins from us. Paul says in the resurrection is a part of that. So you can't have one bed without the other. Jesus' resurrection proves that Christ's death on the cross works. It vindicated him. It proved that Jesus was telling the truth. Because you see, again and again and again in the Gospels, those biographies of Jesus, again and again, he kept saying that he would rise on the third day. All of Jesus' mission hung on that promise. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then we can't trust anything he says, can we? Jesus working on the cross hangs on the Resurrection. All of his teaching hangs on the Resurrection. Paul also says that ultimately, the eternity of Christians hangs on the Resurrection. Look Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people. In other words, to reject the reality of the resurrection removes the result of the resurrection—eternal life. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then what we're doing right now is a complete waste of time. Christianity is a waste (coughs) of time. If we could prove that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, the Union Church would close tomorrow. It would close tonight. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we are all people most to be pitied. But at the same time, if Jesus did rise from the dead, well then that changes everything. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then that is Proof, concrete, one hundred percent proof that there is life after death. Anytime you watch, you know, a medical drama, you know, whether it's something funny like *Scrooge*, or something, like, something serious—not the *Bridesmaids*—serious. But you know, you watch one of these medical dramas, and they always say, "Oh, wish someone come back and tell us if there's anything after death?" Well, well Paul says someone has. It's proven by the resurrection. And the amazing news of the resurrection is that the eternal life that Jesus offers is a real life. It's a physical life. It's not floating around in some disembodied spirit. It's not being absorbed you know, into nirvana and you, you lose all sense of yourself. It's a real, individual, physical, eternal life life. And as I said, in two weeks' time, we're going to look at the result of the resurrection, what that's all going to look like. But for tonight, for tonight, it's probably enough to ask, do you actually believe this? really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, you're so so welcome, but can I implore you to look into this? This really matters. And I say look into it. I don't mean, you know, watch a YouTube video or you know, read a thread on Reddit. Like, actually look into it. Go back to the primary sources. We're just approaching Easter. And I cannot think of a better time in the year to investigate these claims for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. Instead of being relying on what you saw me say about it. Actually, read it for yourself. Read First Corinthians 15 for yourself. Read one of those biographies of Jesus for yourself. If you'd like some help doing that, if you'd like to meet up and shadow with any of this, please, go it one of those welcome cards, That it would be my absolute pleasure and privilege to with you further with these things. Or just you know, grab me for the service. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is an absolute waste of time. But if he did, it is the most important thing in the world. I began this evening by giving a false quote from C.S. where something he didn't actually say. But one thing C.S. Lewis actually did say is this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Moderately important. It can't be moderate, it's either nothing or it's everything, there's no in between. If you don't, if you've never been before, I encourage you to do That there couldn't be anything more important. Even if you decide that it's absolute nonsense, it's a good thing to know that it's absolute nonsense, is not it? Because if it is true, it changes everything. I'm used to a great time. to so many people. Thank you that through that resurrection we can be sure that one day we will run from the dead. Father, help us not to be ashamed or embarrassed of your teaching on this issue. Help us, Father, not to be shame. ashamed or embarrassed of any of the teaching in your word. Father, please help us cling to the foundation of the faith, your apostles. I was an said clearly, so that more and more people will be loved on that last day when we were raised from the dead. And we pray all this in the name of the one who was raised for us, Lord